This is Epicenter, episode 188 with guest William Mugayar. This episode of Epicenter is brought to you by Jax. Jax is the user-friendly wallet that works across all your devices and handles both Bitcoin and Ether. Go to jax.io and embrace the future of cryptocurrency wallets. Hi, welcome to Epicenter, the show which talks about the technologies, projects, and startups driving decentralization and the global blockchain revolution. My name is Sebastian Couture. And my name is Brian Fabian Crane. We're here today with William Mugayar. William is somebody who's already been on the show two years ago, so some of you may remember him. Of course, we'll link to the old episode in the show notes. And uh, he's somebody who many of you will already know. He's doing lots of different things in this industry. He's an investor. He's invested in, uh, for example, Open Bazaar, but also a whole bunch of other projects. Uh, he's been involved with Ethereum since uh, for a long time. He's an author. He's written a book called... Uh, the business of blockchain, I think, or the business, yeah, business blockchain. And uh, he's an organizer of Token Summit recently. There was a big conference in New York around ICOs, uh, token sales, uh, and some of these new developments there. He's also a blogger. He's written prolifically about these topics. So he's really kind of all over. And uh, especially around, I think, the token sales and, and what's been called come to be called ICOs. He's done a ton of work writing, thinking about that. So thanks so much for coming and, and joining us today, William. Hello, everybody. Maybe can, can you just share a little bit to people who, who don't know you so much? Like, how did you originally become interested in this industry? And what, what has your journey been? Sure. So I've been in technology for uh, close to 35 years and was involved with the blockchain in 2013, uh, when at the time it was Bitcoin. And I was lucky uh, that uh, Vitalik lived in the same city that I am. And at that time I met him and became familiarized with the Ethereum project. And since then, it was very obvious to me that this was going to be an important phenomena, as important as the internet was uh, 22 years ago. So I became very focused in terms of trying to understand it, to learn it, and to be very close to those that were very much at the forefront of this new technology. Uh, so I became associated with the Ethereum uh, project and others as well and started to invest and uh, research uh, and um, advise companies in the space um, because of the potential that I saw. Uh, and so it's been uh, close to three and a half years, basically, of very intensive work uh, in this space. Um, and I write a lot as well uh, in my blog on my blog as, as well. And you recently wrote a book. Can you share a bit about you know what's the book about? How has the reception been? True, we haven't been uh, together since the book came out, which was uh, almost uh, a year ago. So uh, I wrote the book in the first half of 2016, and the reason why I wrote it is because I wanted to explain the blockchain in business terms to uh, a mass audience. Uh, as you know, the blockchain, the way it started and the way it still is, by and large, 
is a very much of a technical phenomena. So a lot of the discussions were very much of a technical nature. And there was nothing then that uh, was attempting to explain it to a business audience. So that was really my impetus and my motivation for writing the business blockchain, because I wanted to explain it in more ways than one. And it is a very encompassing subject. It is not easy to wrap your head around it. Uh, it has many facets. It has many implications. And uh, I wanted to write it in a business. Um, I wanted to write something in a business uh, language, and I did that. And the book came out. It was the first book that came out on that topic that explained it uh, and since then, the book has been translated in eight languages. Uh, what was interesting is that the first three languages were Chinese, Japanese, and Korean. And that told me that the interest coming from the Asian countries was very serious. Uh, so this also told me that the phenomena is very global. Uh, there isn't one country that is uh, doing better than another. Uh, there are a number of countries overall worldwide that are all advancing uh, their technology implementations and uh, everything around blockchain uh, is, is very much of an international nature uh, kind of a phenomenon. I have the book uh, in English and, and also in French because it was translated in French recently. And uh, we've, we've got a couple of copies in the office. And uh, I, when, whenever like a new recruit comes in and, you know, maybe the like, especially the people on the business team that haven't, uh, maybe like been involved in, in the blockchain space so much, you know, they're sort of kind of coming into it. Um, you know, we always sort of point to that as one of the reference uh, manuals to you know, learning uh, how, you know, blockchains sort of change the paradigm. And, and it's, it's been really helpful for at least, you know, two people in the team that, uh, that have it, you know, like on their desk and often uh, go back to it. So. Thank you. It's true. I was in Paris uh, last month, um, to launch the French version of the book. Uh, and I think you were one of the first ones to receive the French version. You saw it before I did. Yeah, yeah, I know. You're, you're, um, yeah, uh, well, you're someone who works with you has sent me a copy. And, uh, and uh, unfortunately, I forgot to bring the book with me to the signing, but <laughs> I'll have to see you at some other point to get it saved, uh, signed. So let's, let's jump into, uh, to, uh, to the, the core topic today. And, uh, and that is ICOs. At the moment, there are, it seems, every week at least one or two new ICOs uh, coming out, and we've had a lot of a lot of projects on the show that have uh, went on, gone on to, to to do ICOs. You know, it, it's come with some, I guess, I guess I'd say mixed uh, reaction. You know, uh, a lot of people obviously are interested in in learning about these projects and sort of the innovative nature of these projects. That's certainly what I'm interested in. On the other side, there's a lot of, we're getting a lot of sort of like, I wouldn't say negative feedback, but we're, we're getting some feedback from people that I guess are concerned that uh, we're giving a platform to projects that perhaps are um, damaging to the community or the ecosystem as a whole, or perhaps uh, uh, not legitimate or, um, you know these sort of things. So th there's been mixed reaction, at least from our from our side. Uh, but um, but you know, taking a step back and, and looking at you know what has been happening and the, just the the enormous amounts of money that have been raised in these last you know two to three months. You know, give us your analysis of of this ICO rush. Sure, I think the way I see things right now is that it's going to continue and accelerate for the rest of the year. 
Um, about a month or two ago, I predicted that uh, we would end the year at about a thousand ICOs total and uh, at least a billion dollars in terms of money raised. And I think we are way we are really on track to maybe even exceed that number. We are pretty close now to having one a day. This week, I saw about four or five uh, that were announced or either in, in progress. And uh, right now, when you hear of one, you, it makes the headline. But fairly soon, it's going to be very difficult to track all of them because it's going to be, it's like another startup that has raised some money. So um, if anything, this uh, phenomena is going to continue to accelerate for the reminder uh, the, the remainder of the, of this year, 2017. And uh, I, I would say we're probably still in the early uh, early stages of it. We haven't seen um, a peak yet, or we haven't seen the, the middle uh, part of it yet even. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me also what, what's crazy is not just there's more and more of these projects doing ICOs, but also if you look at like the amount of money raised and how much time it is raised, it's just getting crazier and crazier and crazier. And it's like every week there's a new record. There's a new, and you know, like when we did the Cosmos uh, fundraiser, which was uh, at the beginning of April, you know, we raised uh, 17 million in 28 minutes, which was at the time kind of like a record. But since then there's been like five, six projects that have done like much more money in less time. And, and you know, it's it's no time at all. This is, and then of course now we have something like Bancor, uh, which was just, I think, the largest crowdfunding campaign ever, right? In in bigger than the DAO, bigger than anything that's ever happened, and and it just seems to keeps going like that, right? I mean, I I don't think it's it's probably going to be new projects are going to be even bigger than Banker, I think. Yeah, well, actually, this is concerning to me, and I tweeted about this recently. It seems to me that these kinds of records are the new vanity metrics uh, of uh, the token era. Back in the internet era, there used to be vanity metrics that didn't really mean a whole lot. And some of these companies now that are raising ICO uh, money, token sales, they seem to be more interested in breaking another record uh, and taking another headline, uh, whether it is that they raised more money than the previous company or whether they raised it faster or whether they uh, had a the highest market cap on the first day of being listed. Like yesterday, we saw IOTA uh, claiming to have a valuation of one and a half billion dollars on the first day of being listed. So these kinds of records, I think, when you look back, uh, are going to be meaningless, really. People are confusing success being uh, raising money to success being having a company, having a product, having users, having customers, and being successful in the marketplace in really proving that what you have dreamt about and the vision yet that you have can be executed upon and can come to reality. And uh, that is really what matters, what's going to matter in the months and years following the initial ICO. The initial ICO, the initial token sale is just that, it's just raising money on a promise of something that you still have to deliver on. And right now, the whole market is running on a lot of optimism. Everything, everybody is taking the best case scenario that everybody is going to be successful. Uh, everybody is painting a very rosy picture. Uh, everybody has a great white paper and a great vision. And 
the products are not even developed yet. Uh, I'm applauding them for raising money. There's nothing wrong with that because money is going to be funding this innovation. But what really is going to matter is, is the teams delivering on their visions and delivering on uh, their promises to the marketplace. I think that's a that's a very very valid point. I mean, the 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 pe- people look at these vanity metrics, and of course, it's always interesting and sort of fun to throw them around. I I I kind of like you know, when when I'm in, in you know speaking with um, you know like uh, people that are not necessarily in the space. I, I kind of like throwing out there. Oh yeah, this company just raised thirty six million in two you know in, in thirty seconds or whatever. You just see their eyes light up. People don't really understand you know what that means, but. It's a reality, and it's it's a, it's kind of it's kind of fun to do that. But on the, on the other hand, you're right. You're right about the fact that there, there, we need we need to have companies that can execute on this. And you know, if you just look at you know, like regular startups, right? Like out of a hundred startups, whatever, like ninety some will probably fail or like not execute on their vision. That 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 metric was is probably true as well for these companies. A lot. It, it's possible a lot of people lose a lot of money. Um, or that these founders perhaps you know take off with that money and themselves um, uh, become enriched uh, personally. What do, what do you think the future holds for you know? In, if we look at things like realistically speaking, exactly. I mean, what has become easier is raising money. Yes, but what has not become easier, what has not changed, is the difficulty level of uh, developing a company. The, the laws of a startup evolution, of how startups start, how they evolve, how they bring a product to the market, how they get users, uh, how they iterate on the product, and how they, they, how they solidify their position in the marketplace, that has not changed. The physics laws or the laws, the natural laws of startup uh, growth have not changed, and they will not change uh, just because... Uh, you can raise a lot of money doesn't mean that your chances of success are going to be greater. If anything, it's the opposite. Uh, The traditional VC wisdom is uh, if you have less money to start with, you will be more careful with how you use it and you will make better decisions and you will make the better decisions uh, overall. Uh, So I'm a bit worried right now when suddenly uh, a team of two or 12 people uh, have in front of them 15, 20, 30, and recently we've seen $150 million at their fingertips. And uh, what they will do with it uh, is, is, is really putting a lot of faith in, in them doing the right thing and doing it at the right time. So nothing has changed in terms of uh, the difficulty levels of bringing a product to market. And, and people keep looking back at Bitcoin and Ethereum as a success story, and they want to emulate it. And they say, well, Bitcoin did it, Ethereum did it. But you should not forget, Ethereum has been at it for three and a half years. And there was a lot of blood, sweat, and tears in the Ethereum project, especially in the early days. It was not a straight line to the top uh, from the early days. There was a lot of hard work, uh, there was there were some mistakes that were made, and each mistake was recovered. There were iterations. I shouldn't say mistakes, but there were iterations, small mistakes. All startups make mistakes. Uh, obviously, if you have a lot of money, you can cover a lot of your mistakes because it gives you more time to correct them. 
so maybe that's the silver lining that these companies have. Um, but um, it's it's kind of uh, a bit unconventional to think that you can raise once and then fly on your own for the rest. Um, so it, it, we should see what happens in a year or two uh, from the time that these companies raise money. And we should see what kinds of progress uh, is being made in the marketplace. And, and that really is going to become the measure of success potentially with them. Let's take a short break to talk about the iPrice, a competition being run by the Energy Innovation Hub. The iPrice is all about the machine economy, the rapidly evolving relationship between humans and machines, with huge technological revolutions coming like blockchain and artificial intelligence. Some crazy changes and new developments are ahead of us like autonomous driving, self-organizing supply chains, DNA replicating robots, and so much more. If you're doing work around these areas, the iPrize is your chance to do like Elon Musk and take it to the next level. It's a competition that's being run until July 28th. Startups can apply in three different categories and have a chance to win up to 250,000 euros in seed funding. Even if you just have an idea, you can apply as an individual and get a stipend, office basement in Berlin, and mentorship to grow your idea. So whether you're just mulling over a world-changing idea in your basement, have built your first prototype, or founded your company, you can participate and make it to the great finale in Berlin on September 28th. So go to epicenter.tv slash iPRIZE, that's I-P-R-I-Z-E, to learn more about the competition and how you can apply. We'd like to thank Energy and the iPRIZE for their support of Epicenter. So let's just play this out a little bit. So you mentioned that you don't think we are, you know, at peak yet. It's going to accelerate. More projects are going to start doing ICO. So, so how do you see that playing out? Like, how far is that going to go? What, what kind of counter forces are going to happen? And you know, what, what is this whole environment going to look like a year, two years from now? I think we are still in a honeymoon period right now, where the entrepreneurs and the ICOs and the startups that are raising this amount of money are being given the benefit of the doubt in terms of being successful. There's a lot of free money around because a lot of the money that's going into this new wave of companies that are being funded is coming from money that was already appreciated in the crypto capital space. So if you look at the whole market in the market capitalization, uh, number about a year ago we were about at 20 billion dollars and today year after we're at 110 billion dollars so about 90 billion dollars were made somehow out of almost out of thin air there is that much value that just became available became created in the last year and a lot of that money is being recycled into these new projects when you look at these new projects, more than two-thirds, between two-thirds and 75% of the money coming in is crypto money that has been recycled from other projects. So this is positive because it's funding innovation. And there's going to be a long time before we're going to come back and say, well, now what have you done? So uh, a lot of these companies that are raising right now, I think they can run for a year before we can start to ask some hard questions as to the progress. So the smart companies need to have more transparency going forward 
in terms of letting everybody know what they are doing and where they are. Uh, about a month ago, I wrote a, a blog post saying that the cycles that these companies, the ICO companies go through, uh, after launch, they go into what I call a darkness period where we don't really know where they are at. It's very difficult to get the real metrics coming out of these companies before really being able to point and say, well, here, there are customers. Here, there are users. So if you think of this in a quadrant where you start at the launch and then you go into the darkness and then you transition into a period where you go into the reality and very few companies are in that reality quadrant. And the companies that are in the reality quadrant are companies like Steemit, like Storage, Sia, Bitcoin, Ethereum, of course, Zcash, and maybe I've left a handful, but there are very few and far in between. These are companies that you can point to and say, well, here, they have customers. Here, they have a website. They have an application. Most others, they go from launch to darkness. And, and that darkness could be one or two years. So that's really what's going on right now. What's going to play out, it's difficult to kind of predict exactly, but I said recently that we need to see a few more failures before things start to come down to reality. Right now, 30X is the new 3X. 100X is the new 10X. So definitely there is something that is not real here. And I remember back in the dot-com era when the crash happened, there was a period where we thought that the sky was the limit. We thought that everything was going to the moon. And this is when it started to crash because the moon is not something that you can put a ladder on and reach. But once you have that feeling, it can go on for so long before reality sets. And usually that takes, it takes an amount of time before we start to realize uh, that things are not real here. So all I'm doing here is just pouring a little bit of cold water and me as a person, I'm not gonna change anything. I'm not going to be able to change what's going to happen. Entrepreneurs are going to run with it. Companies are gonna run with it. ICOs will be raised and tokens will be sold at valuations that are unrealistic perhaps. Uh, before we start to realize, well, maybe this didn't make sense in certain parts. And in a way, it's okay because we don't know what the boundaries are. And the only way to know boundaries is to touch them and to go over the limit and then to hurt yourself. And then you realize, well, this is the boundary. This works, this doesn't work. And right now we're still experimenting. We don't even know what the perfect token sale characteristic is. There are many variations and many opinions as to what is the ideal one. And we can talk about that in a few minutes. Uh, so there are lots of lots of experiments being uh, being made right now, and, and we're making it up as we go, more or less. Uh, but that there are certain ways that uh, uh, are a little bit uh, unusual. And once in a while, we are seeing them. And uh, like the Bancor example and the IOTA example, again, we keep going back to those. And we can talk about others. And we, each one is a learning lesson. There are things you can emulate from what these companies are doing. And there are things that you should not emulate 
from what these companies are doing. Yeah, I mean, just one thing to add here that I think is also an important factor, uh, which is that you know a lot of these projects have so much money that they don't yeah they don't need to go back and and sort of justify what they've done to get more money right which is the sort of vc dynamic you have so you know there may be kind of an exaggerated vc maybe valuations are too high but then you know two years later they have to come back and say like you know is is there traction but then you have projects like you know we did a podcast with golem like the other week and when they did their crowdfunding campaign it was kind of reasonable right they raised like nine million or something or 10 million but now because of the ether appreciation and because of the appreciation of the token, they have like more than a hundred million, right, in assets. And, and there, there's a lot of projects like that, and or you know, there's starting to be a significant number of projects like that. So they have infinite runway almost. So it, that makes it also tricky, right? Because they don't have to. They they can really build for stuff for a long time before they. So that day of reckoning, it's not clear when that's coming. True. And it's going to come in a different way than uh, we need more money. We have no more money uh, unless they uh, unless some of these companies are really reckless and they spend all the money. Then it becomes obvious that they, they cannot go anywhere. But theoretically, they can go on forever. I mean, almost forever. They can go on for five to seven years and not ask for more money and um, look like they are working on something. Um, and I've seen companies, traditionally speaking, that have raised a lot of money before the token era uh, that can go on for two, three, four, five, four years with a semblance of doing things, uh, but they are not progressing in reality. But the public should be asking, we should be asking, I will be asking questions a year from now uh, to these companies that have raised a lot of money. And uh, we'll have to see what they uh, do with the market. Because at the end of the day, uh, you can fake so many things, but you cannot fake having customers. You cannot fake having users. You cannot fake traction. Uh, you cannot fake a number of things that have to be visible. Uh, you can tell a story for so long uh, until you have to uh, to show that uh, there is something real out there. You mentioned before uh, the Bancor cartel. Maybe we can dive into that just a little bit. What do you, what did they do? What do you think they did well? And what do you don't like about what they did? Well, I, I wrote a blog post on it yesterday uh, without going into a lot of the details. What they did very well is they, they orchestrated the marketing campaign extremely well. So they communicated everything they were doing that was impacting the sale. They It was clear they wanted to maximize uh, the number of tokens uh, being sold. And they achieved that, and then they overachieved it. Um, so you could argue that and say, well, why do you need so much money? Uh, and why have a hidden cap? I'm not a fa- in favor of hidden caps. That was another thing that they did. They did not disclose the cap they had in mind until after, uh, until three quarters of the way into the sale. And uh, they said later they had a hidden cap of 250,000 ethers, or as they ended it at 400,000 ether which exceeded the Dow raise of $150 million. So I don't have any evidence, but you could argue that one of their internal goals was to overpass the Dow. Again, to get another headline saying that they were the highest um, raise uh, in the token era. Maybe it's coincidental, maybe it's not, but they did eclipse the Dow by $3 million 
and they got that headline. Now, they are saying that they need that much money for their reserve uh, system to work. Uh, fine. But we're still questioning. People, not, I'm not the only one that's questioning the fact that uh, this was a fairly greedy way of getting money from uh, the crowd. Uh, and uh, $150 million is a lot of money that could fund maybe uh, 15 to 30 startups. You don't need that much money to start uh, something. Uh, traditionally speaking, companies are raising one to $5 million. You can do a lot with $10 million. Um, so I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. I don't want to pick on them for too long. Um, but uh, let's see what they do with it. That's, that's really the more important thing. But every time you have one of these, we learn. We learn some things. So with the bank or deal, we're saying don't do a a, a uncapped race. It's not a good idea. When uh, we got the BAT, uh, the uh, basic attention token, uh, the Brave token, it was all done in uh, in uh, 15 or 30 seconds. Uh, 30, 30 seconds. Um, so there, what we learned there is is uh, is to to not not do something like that, where uh, only the sophisticated investor will know how to pull the trigger faster than the average consumer. There are funds that have developed what is called a sniper wallet. I don't know if you've heard that term before. A sniper wallet is a technology that goes and snipes these crowd sales faster than others. And they have the advantage because they have developed that technology. But it's not fair for the consumers that are sitting on their computer and maybe had to wake up at 4 a.m. or whenever the start of the sale is and hit on the on their buy button from the wallet, send money, and then before they knew it, they're going to be the last in the queue because somebody has figured out that they gave another high level of gas. That's that's how some of the bat uh, token uh, buyers got in, is they raised the limit on the gas uh, and they got in front of the line because the priority of the transactions were was ahead of others. So what we learned there is to limit the gas, have a gas limit. That's something that Bancor did. But what they did, they lowered it too low, and it pro it made it provided a, a log jam in the transaction queue, because all of these transactions were had a low gas limit and they were lining up, and that created another kind of bottleneck. So I'm not in favor of sales where you have an hour or three hours to do it because the blockchains are not uh, are not ready to take that much transaction volume. The Ethereum blockchain was choking at that particular time. I did a test during that time. I sent some ether from one place to another, uh, and it took hours and hours before it, got, it was confirmed. It took close to nine hours uh, until everything got caught up on that same day. So we don't need to create this sense of urgency. Uh, nothing good happens when you rush things. Why just one hour? Why three hours? Why not go with two weeks and one week and have a more orderly kind of a token raise when the, where the cap is known, where you allow a lot of token holders to buy into your sale? If you believe in distribution, if you believe that users are going to lift up your application and then help you to make some headways in the market. If you believe that you want to empower developers 
end users at large to use your application, why not maximize the token sale for distribution as opposed to making a quick buck very fast and then closing it after three hours and then and then not caring whether there was chaos in between or not. Oh, I mean that that's a that's a great point. I mean we we can point at the a number of crowd sales that uh, depending on the on on the model um, ran into similar problems. So uh, you you mentioned the 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 fact that during the Bancor sale, of course, it's sort of like a, a DDoS attack on the network. I tried to send some ether as well, and and um, wasn't able to. Uh, just straight up couldn't send, uh, and uh, and and there are also uh, some crowd sales like like the BAT crowd sale um, were, in my opinion, just you know it it, it was undemocratic. You, there's there's no other way to put it other than it's just there's no fair and equal distribution of of these tokens. In uh, you you wrote a blog post uh, recently exposing your thoughts on Bancor, and and in here you. You say that permissionless doesn't need absurdness or recklessness, and the, this sort of appears to be what we're pointing at here is absurdness and rec- recklessness with the way that these crowd sales are um, are conducted. What do you think are, are some of the ways that we can mitigate some of this uh, absurdness? People are pushing the limits uh, because just because it's possible. I mean, they could have raised even more. They could have. Open this for another two hours and maybe raise another hundred million, probably. Um, what can we do? I mean, we can point at it. We can people like me and others have written on it, uh, maybe indirectly, like Fred Wilson. I was a bit more direct uh, and and called them out. Uh, whereas uh, Fred today uh, prescribed a set of generic uh, practices uh, for token sales, and his partner Albert Wenger also has written about that topic. I think that's one way of uh, doing it, is pouring some cold water on it. Uh, we can't wait for disasters to happen necessarily. Uh, one area that I think we can do better as, a, as an industry is right now there is no standard way of reporting on these filings. Uh, if you want to, uh, if, you, if you're interested in, in one of those filings, you have to read each one of the terms. And I've read more than a dozen of them. Uh, and, and they are from six pages to 24 pages each. And they go through a lengthy amount of describing uh, the issuance process, so what they are issuing, um, how many tokens, the value, and how they are distributing them. And there's no standard, which means that everyone is describing their token sale in a very different way. So it leaves a lot of uncertainty to the reader and to the investor, to the consumer, to try to interpret these terms and to find out what is missing and what is not missing. And in my analysis of these uh, close to a dozen of them, there are holes in, in most of them. And, and there are things that people don't say. Uh, and uh, you have to kind of figure out um, what what is not said and what is meant and how much leeway uh, they have. So what would be valuable is to have some kind of standard way of at least reporting on it. So instead of each company having 12 different ways of announcing a sale, what if there was one standard way and within that standard way, they can have their own parameters, but at least 
we would be looking at this from a more standardized aspect. And this is a project that I'm working on right now, actually, uh, that will be announced in the, in the coming days, uh, where it's going to provide more transparency and more standardized ways uh, to file for these token offerings uh, in a way that would benefit the consumers, that would benefit the investors, and that would allow them to compare uh, these offerings uh, in a more comprehensive way and, and not uh, having to decipher them. And uh, only the astute one, astute reader, will figure out what's missing and, and what's not missing in, in those uh, sales uh, because they are all over the place right now. So, so William, I'm really curious. What, you know, what are some of the things that you like that people do in Crowdtail or that you would like to see? And and um, in particular, I would also be interested in your comment on on you know two Crowdtails that are coming up that are taking uh, doing some different and novel things. One is IPFS, which is going to do the Filecoin Crowdtail soon, and they're doing that via this new platform called CoinList, which is associated with uh, Angel. Um, so which, which is already being used right, for crowdfunding, equity crowdfunding uh, for startups, but you're not in the crypto space. And, and that's going to be limited to accredited investors, right? So most people are not going to be able to participate. And then the other one is the, the Civic Crowd Sale, which is Winnie Lingham's startup. And, and they're basically doing some kind of KYC of, uh, of investors where you're going to have to you know, at least authenticate that you're a person with a phone number and uh, an email address. Uh, so, what do you think of those approaches? Do you think those will become more prevalent? Do you like the direction they're going? Well, these are more sensible examples uh, that are not going to create chaos, at least. And in the case of Civic, um, they've announced that uh, about three quarters of uh, of the sale amount is going to be filled uh, in the pre-sale uh, stage, uh, meaning that, uh, uh, and they said it's already filled in, in, in that regard. Um, so this was done with a KYC process, uh, uh, and it's a more orderly uh, process. In, in the case of uh, IPFS and, and Filecoin, CoinList, as you said, is an accredited uh, vehicle. Um, so there it's limited even more. And the idea here is that anybody that invests should be prepared to lose their money. And that's usually the thinking of investors. Uh, accredited investors um, are mature enough that they only invest uh, on the premise that they could lose all of the money. And it wouldn't be fair to uh, subject consumers uh, to the same risks that uh, um, investors that can afford to lose their money uh, are, are facing. You know, accredited investor it just means you have more than one million in like liquid assets, right? And, and I mean, I, I don't see how the risk with uh, the IPFS or Filecoin um, crowdfunding campaign is going to be all that different from Bancor or any of these other projects, right? So, so the risk isn't really that different, uh, and but but it's limited. So uh, is that consistent? Or wouldn't you then say all of them should be limited to accredited investors? Do you think some of them make sense, but others should be open? Well, in the case of IPFS and Falcon, they have been at it for a number of years. Uh, there are applications that are running on IPFS today. And um, so I wouldn't put them at the same level as Bancor. Um, although Bancor said they've been working on their system for a year and so on. 
But IPFS is a lot more real and, and Filecoin is a lot more real. There are users, you can point at them, you can point at applications uh, that are using IPFS. So the main thing here, and uh, I've been writing about this as well, is the linkage between the token utility and the usage of the token to the actual application or to the protocol specifically that's underlying it. So at the end of the day, the reason why you have the token is not just that the token is a funding mechanism, although at the surface it appears to be a very efficient funding mechanism because you have money, you have tokens, you just convert them and you have real dollars uh, in the bank. But in the long term, the real value underlying this, as I, and I said this when I opened the token summit, I said, we're not here to talk about the price of tokens and the value and the, and the actual uh, market mechanics of uh, speculating on them. We're here to talk about the business models that the tokens enable. So the whole conference, the token summit that I ran in, in New York uh, three weeks ago was focused on discussing in detail what are the business models, what are the utility aspects, the usages, and the value and the features of the, that the tokens can have in the context of a business model, in the context of what will it do to the user? What will it do to the developer? Uh, is, it a, is it a use, is it a right? Is it giving the usage, uh, is it a right to do something with the application? Um, is it a toll? Is it uh, a, a value exchange um, uh, unit? Uh, is, is it uh, an internal currency? Uh, is it a way to earn money as well, to earn value? Uh, so uh, with Filecoin and, and uh, IPFS, they are related because Filecoin is, is the monetizable way of storing, uh, of, store, of storage that the IPFS applications are going to be using. So there is, there is a relationship there. Uh, with, the civic, uh, with the civic application, uh, th there is a relationship between the, the token itself and the identity and the role of, the, of showing your identity and proving your identity is going to have uh, and the role of the token is going to facilitate that process. So the more I see real linkages, uh, the more I get excited, the more I see value, uh, especially if it's working already, like uh, the case of Steemit, for example. The Steemit wallet is part of the logged in experience. So if you are a user on Steemit and you log in and you're already in the Steemit application, right in there, there is a drop-down menu that says wallet. So your wallet is in there as part of your user experience. Every time you, uh, if you create a, a post, a content, or if you upvote it, uh, or, or if you uh, write a comment, uh, automatically either money is taken uh, out of uh, your wallet or money is deposited in your wallet. And you, you don't even think about it. You, it just happens in the background. But the token, the Steam, the Steam token is, is part of the application. And we need to see more of those kinds of applications where the token is very intrinsic uh, and, and very much an atomic unit of the application itself. And, and maybe the user doesn't know uh, or doesn't touch the token, but they touch the actual application. And, and um, automatically something happens with the transfer of token value back and forth. And, and, and that's, uh, that's, that gets me more excited. And, and, and that's what we should be looking for and asking these companies is, is what is the token uh, linkage to your application or to your protocol specifically.
Let's take a short break to talk about Jax. Jax is your wallet, your complete user interface to cover all your blockchain needs. I've been using it and I've been loving it. Now, Jax supports a lot of different cryptocurrencies. It supports Bitcoin, Ether, Litecoin, Ethereum Classic, Zcash, Augurep, and they're adding many more. Keep responding to users' needs. Now, with Jax, the nice thing is that you can manage all of those coins within a single wallet and you are in control of your own private keys. They're not on their server. And there's a single 12-word seed that you can use to back up your wallet, all your coins, and sync them across different devices. Talking about devices, they're on pretty much any device that you can think of. You can get it on PC, Mac, Linux. You can get it on smartphones like Android and Apple and iPhone. You can get it on tablets or even, there are even browser extensions for Chrome and Firefox. And on top of that, in JAX, you can actually exchange different cryptocurrencies for each other because they've integrated a shapeshift. And more partnerships and integrations are coming down the line in 2017 that are going to make JAX even better. So JAX is really making blockchain and cryptocurrencies accessible for the masses, easy to use for the masses. Make sure to get your own JAX wallet at JAX.io or you can get it from any of the app stores you are using. We'd like to thank JAX for their support of Epicenter. So you mentioned Steemit. Are there some other interesting uses or, or kind of combinations between uh, products and, and tokens that you're currently seeing? Well, on the consumer end, uh, I think it would be interesting to find out uh, what happens with token. There's an application called Token that Coinbase has just uh, released, a be- released a beta version of. There's another equivalent one called Status. Uh, a status is going via an ICO route, excuse me, uh, fairly soon. Uh, that's my understanding. Uh, so these will be uh, in the flavor of uh, consumer applications uh, that will be on your uh, smartphone specifically. And um, I've said this before, uh, and the, uh, what I'm seeing here is that uh, the money that we have in our pockets and the money that exists today in our bank accounts uh, that's getting competition uh, from cryptocurrency. It's getting competition from cryptocurrency uh, in in the apps, in apps that will be in our smartphones or in wallets uh, that are in our smartphones. So if you're one of the kind of leading uh, early adopters, uh, you have some cryptocurrency in, in wallets or in exchanges, but soon you will have them in the apps uh, I'm a user of Steemit. I have value. I have uh, a bit of money that has some value in in the Steemit, uh, in in my Steemit Steemit uh, app, and and that has value. So uh, so we're going to see more of those uh, emerging. Uh, uh, I'm hopeful that a, a consumer app like Token or Status uh, will uh, eventually have millions of users, uh, because the token is a very efficient way to send and receive money or send and receive value with with a very low transaction fee, uh, almost close to zero. Uh, So one of the use cases that token, the the app token I'm talking about, uh, is is showing, showcasing on their uh, beta version, is the ability to send money between consumers as easily as you can send a text message. So imagine you're sending money as easy as just sending a text message and you say, I want to send one ether from to you, 
to Fabian or to to uh, Sebastian, and and it, that it happens in seconds at a very very low transaction fee, very efficiently, and nobody's in the middle of that. It's not like Venmo, it's not like PayPal, uh, it's not like doing a transfer with a bank because there's nobody in the middle. Uh, you're just doing it on the blockchain, and Coinbase is just a very lightweight intermediary. And I think uh, there's a lot of value in in having us uh, see this kind of alternate way of sending and receiving money. So people ask me, so why why is this going to replace what we currently have? And and my answer is that you cannot compare. You cannot compare to the current system that we have, because you will fail every time when you compare it. This is a new a new system. This is a new alternative system that is being created here. Uh, there is still lots of friction between the the current world that we have and the cryptocurrency world. Every time you want to go in and out of it, there is friction, and that's why the mer- merchants are not taking off on accepting Bitcoin or or cryptocurrency, because the credit card works very well, cash works very well, a debit card works very well. We're not going to replace that, but if you enter a new system where cryptocurrency is a native unit, and the only way to transact value is with cryptocurrency or with tokens, then you don't know anything else. And then you say, well, this is efficient. And the analogy I I give is, I remember a few years ago when uh, we started to build the cellular network, cellular phones took off everywhere in the world, but we didn't use the landlines to do that, right? We had to build towers. So it was a totally new infrastructure. We built the tower towers infrastructure to to have the cellular uh, system uh, ha- happen uh, anywhere in the world. When when the web came along, we didn't use the mainframes. Before the web, the mainframes were the prevalent computing platform. We didn't use the mainframes to power the web and the internet. It was a bunch of servers, client-server technology is what took over the web. So it was a new infrastructure. So think of this whole, what we are enabling here and where we are building a new infrastructure totally that almost doesn't have any regards or doesn't care almost about the current infrastructure, the current way of dealing with money. This is a new way of dealing with value. So every application that is raising a token, they should have more tighter, tighter linkages between what users can do with their application and uh, what users hold in terms of tokens, because that's what's going to make the whole thing fly. That's what's going to make everything work in a way uh, that is a kind of give and take. Because if you want a real good economy to work, you need people to buy things, you need people to sell things, you need people to earn things, you need people to also be able to spend it. And, and in a way, this is all about creating a new economy. Uh, we can call it the token economy or the blockchain economy. But this is about the creation of something new that didn't exist before. So we, not, we have to enable transactional activity in this new economy. And that's very important. So I'd like to come back maybe to the, to the applications. I mean, I'm going to have a somewhat contrarian viewpoint here because I see a I'm I'm not super optimistic at the moment that we're going to find native killer apps um, 
where people just regular, you know, like your parents, your friends at school, like people that are not like techies or interested in startups or or interested in blockchain using this this type of technology every day like they're using Facebook. And so one of the things you mentioned is that so credit cards are easy and I think for the for for most people that's the case on onboarding with credit cards with competing applications like Lydia, PayPal, or not Lydia, sorry, uh, Venmo in the U.S., um, is is made incredibly easy by the fact that these companies are are, um, are regulated and 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 um, and it's easy to to use a credit card to onboard. And I think that applications, native sort of blockchain applications that are trying to apply this new model to existing use cases like state status or or um, or token. And I, I love what Status is doing, but I think that if we take those examples, so they're they're attack they're sort of going into the the messaging space. That space is already extremely fragmented, and where there are incumbents that have enormous networks effect network effects, Facebook, WhatsApp, WeChat, and I think that it would be more likely that a company like Facebook has ha, would have success uh, by integrating some sort of token um, than it is for uh, a, a startup in the blockchain space to have you know 10 million users um, in in this space I'm not sure about that for for Facebook to adopt a token model, they would have to disrupt their advertising model, which works very well. So Facebook is going to be facing the innovator's dilemma. I mean, just for payments. I'm, I'm talking about sort of not not replacing the Facebook's business model. But let's say Facebook says, okay, in WhatsApp, now we can do, you can do payments and you, you can send tokens in WhatsApp and you can build applications using this WhatsApp token. And maybe they do an ICO or something like that, right? Possibly they, they they would have to do it uh, in a in a on the blockchain and not using a payment processor in the background and giving the illusion of a peer to peer where there was a processor in the middle. Right, but even even then, then you're still going to have the friction the on the, the friction with onboarding because you when you want to get money in, you're still going to need to use a credit card and currently the way that's set up is there needs to be some sort of a uh, a KYC done and, and people are not people are not going to do that. I mean. What if, but what if you don't have to do that? What if you earn, what if you earn that, those tokens from other means? Uh, I did recently a TEDx uh, talk where it was about the future of work, as it relates to tokens. And in the future, uh, you will be earning more tokens than we are earning tokens today, by do, by doing what I call active work or passive work. Um, so again, I go back to Steemit as an example. You are, you will be earning real money and what if you, you've earned, earned it uh, by just doing something or by sharing your data, for example, that could be a passive way of earning money. What if you're sharing some of your disk drive like storage or via Filecoin or uh, SIA uh, and, and you're earning money, I mean tokens, because you're sharing your drive, you're sharing your computing cycles and you use that money the next day to uh, in your token uh, wallet. Uh, so we're gonna have that new economy it's not going to be that I bought 
these tokens with ten dollars or yeah. twenty dollars. I mean, I, I I get those. I, I love those use cases. Like those use cases get me excited, personally, me. Yeah. But I think that it it remains a very it for the most part. I think it will would will remain a very niche thing that will attract people that are interested in sort of innovative type of technologies, you know, sort of techies. But I don't see any of my friends that, you know, have college degrees, work at startups even, investing time in trying to make a little bit of money on the side by renting their disk space or selling their data or like doing a, a, a like a gig or something, like a five-minute gig or something. Let me weigh in on this. I, I I think a few points are important here. So first of all, the point that, you know, existing companies will kind of integrate tokens and stuff, I don't think that's going to be really the case in the same way. Because if, you, if you're going to do a, a token sale, uh, or if you're going to have a, you really need to figure out how that token is going to be at the core center of the business model. And that's just something fundamentally different. You can't just like plug that in in the end, but you have from the ground up do something new. And I don't think existing big players are going to be able to do that because, you know, as William pointed out, right, they have their existing models, existing processes, existing business models, uh, and you can't just plug that in at the end. No, and I, I think that's very, I think that scenario is very unlikely. When I when I say that as, when I exp- yeah. uh, present that as a scenario, it's super unlikely that that would, that would happen, I think. Unless you use that as a competitive advantage, like what Kick is doing, uh, because Kick does not have does not have an advertising model right now. So for them, uh, Kick is going to be issuing a new uh, currency called Kin, K-I-N, and to to empower their users, and they have millions of users. So we are going to start to see uh, more and more uh, non-blockchain companies adopt the token model in as much as it can empower their users in as much as they can uncover usages and utility and value for their for their users in terms of that token. Uh, whether it's the creation of something where they earn it or where they can spend it. So it could be a great currency inside these, these apps that already exist today that did not have previously a, a model where they could monetize. And I, I just wanna point out one other thing that, uh, that Sebastian said. Uh, you know, which is this point that, okay, I don't see like regular people like adopting this. And I think a few things. So first of all, I mean, I have noticed just in the last few months, the number of people that I sort of know that aren't in this industry, they are getting interested, they want to buy Bitcoin and Ether. And of course, it's largely driven by the speculation and by the, you know, by the value increase that's here. But there's an enormous amount of influx in people. And, you know, we're seeing this across the board, you know, Coinbase is, at capacity, the Ethereum meetup here is like $200 P's when the topic is like, you know, light client and something, some things that people will not understand, you know, as a regular meetup uh, are an epicenter, you know, downloads have been going through the roof like crazy. It's just all over, right? We're seeing an explosion. And, um, and I think the other thing that's important here is when you are able to build really this incentive thing as a core part of the product, you know, like Steemit has done it, right? Where you you, can, you, you participate on there and, and you you profit from the network's growth. I think that's enormously powerful. And and you, you will be able to build social networks. Any kind of network effects will work, you know, extremely well with, with tokens. And I think we will absolutely see, 
you know, mass participation in those kind of uh, projects very, very soon. Yeah, and with Steemit, I mean, so Steemit is is a great example of a, of, a, of a success, right? Where I think I would point to as here's an example where we've created value out of, I guess, nothing out of out of content, I guess, but where people are coming into the system and they're gaining value from that. And and they've been pretty successful at. Um, bringing in people from outside uh, the, the blockchain space or the Bitcoin space or whatever, like the non-Bitcoiners. But it's still a pretty niche type of thing. And with regards to your, your first point, Brian, uh, I think a lot of the influx right now is, is just speculation. I think that a lot of the people that, perhaps, you know, that we've seen come on as new subscribers to the podcast, yeah, they're interested in the, in the, in the technology. But I think like myself, when I first got interested in this technology, it was driven by uh, potentially, you know, like a, a, a means to make some money through this speculative speculation, which was which was Bitcoin at the time. Um, I think that that's driving a lot of the interest is not how can I use this to you know um, make my life better or do new types of things or whatever. I think a lot of people are coming in because they're looking at it as a way to make some money. Well, some of these new applications are going to be as easy to use as uh, the WhatsApp and the Facebooks uh, and what we see today. So that's why when I saw the early versions of token and status, uh, I am encouraged because these are very easy to use applications that uh, anybody uh, can use and they won't even know they are interacting with the blockchain because there's nothing geeky about these applications. Uh, same thing with Steemit. If you can publish something on Reddit, you can publish something on Steemit uh, with the same ease, with the same uh, way, and you don't really see the blockchain in the technical sense. Uh, so we're going to see more and more of these kinds of applications that are hiding all the complexity behind and, and just working well uh, on their user interface and user experience. Yeah, I, I, I think so, but I... I think, like when you mentioned Reddit, I mean, even Reddit, even though it has you know, millions of users, ask ten people if they know what Reddit is. A lot of people don't know what Reddit is. It, it remains a sort of you know internet culture type of social network that is known by like a certain subset of people, and it has nowhere near the notoriety I think in the sort of general population as something like Facebook. So I, I'm not saying that there's no room for tokens to have a, a, a uh, a place as a valid way to construct new use cases, new business models, et cetera. But I think for the majority of consumers or just, you know, regular people, it, it will remain uh, but, a I mean, niche thing. Yeah, Reddit is at the moment the number four ranked website in the U.S. In the U.S., in, in the U.S., that's, that, that's a good point. And in globally, the US, seven. So. I regularly... Tell people about Reddit and they have no idea what it is. <laughs> and like course, educated sure. people. So maybe it's the people I'm hanging out with. But I, I wanted to come back to, to one uh, one thing about crowd sales. So Sebastian and I were also talking about it a little bit before uh, the show. And, and I'd be really curious about your opinion here, William. So to me, you know, it, it seems like this is such a massive disruption of, uh, you know, venture capital. So how do you see that? Do you think venture capital is going to survive uh, as it is today? How will it be changed by that? And, and what are venture capitalists thinking about what's happening here? Are they worried? Are they scared? How are they dealing with this? 
It depends uh, on on who who it is we're talking about. I think there is a number of scenarios that are going on right now. There are some VCs that have been very early with this and have seen it uh, before others and already have participated in in companies that um, are going to have tokens or maybe they invested in funds that are investing in tokens. And here um, I can name USV or Andreessen Horowitz as examples. So, uh, and you can count them maybe on one hand, uh, those that have seen this earlier than others and are already in it. There is another uh, segment, and the, these are the traditional blockchain types of uh, investors that were very early with Bitcoin. And they're also now realizing that there has to be a play with tokens. So here we have the blockchain capital and the Pantera that are also uh, going to be playing with, uh, with token-based uh, funds. And then the third segment is uh, the VCs that are kind of very interested. And some of them attended the token summit and interacted with me. And they have maybe done um, one or two um, participations in token sales. Um, and they would be maybe the next ones to kind of start to get interested. And then you have the rest. And, and maybe the rest is maybe 95% of the VCs that have been totally uh, not touched by anything to do with tokens right now. And, and, and maybe that number is 98%. Uh, uh, they have one limitation, which is their current LP, uh, limited partnership agreements, in most of them uh, prevent them from investing in, in this type of currency, which is cryptocurrency. Uh, so uh, that's, that's the reality. Uh, VCs are bound by the limited partnership agreements that they sign when they raise money, uh, which says they can do certain things and not other things. And the cryptocurrency... Uh, item was not part of the vocabulary uh, two years ago or three years ago. Uh, so what's happening, either these uh, VCs have to raise new funds with new terms, uh, or they are going back to the LPs and trying to change some of the terms to allow them to invest in, in those tokens, in, in, or at least in, in something that will become a token. Uh, and, and many of them are just waiting and, and not wanting to get involved for another year, or at least to see what's going to happen. And that's fine as well, um, because there will be opportunities. Uh, suppose there is a crash one day, I don't know when that might be, or maybe there is no crash, but when things become a little bit more clear, when things become a bit more reasonable, where when things become um, maybe a post-crash period perhaps, there will be opportunities to make money as well, uh, in a second stage of this evolution, in the same way as if you look back to the internet, we had the dot-com crash, 99 to 2000, 2001, there was still kind of happening. And then we had a dry period for two or three years. And then 2004 and forward, everything started to happen again. And then we have been on a very strong trajectory since then. So the same thing could happen. And we had new players come in in 2004, uh, either those that survived the crash or new ones that came along uh, were able to raise new money and did well and are still doing very well. So that's what might happen with, with VCs uh, going forward. But do you think they will be able to adapt? Or, I mean, because one of the things also about VCs is, is they had this advantage, which is they have access to these 
companies that you know i as a regular you know regular people have very difficult access to investing in in startups but vcs can uh, but but this is different right here like fairly normal people can invest so all of a sudden you kind of have this level playing field so i wonder you do you think that model can can survive i'm sure it's going to survive but uh, the question would is is it being threatened yes it is being threatened uh, it's being disrupted a little bit. So like anything, uh, it's not going to change everybody. Uh, what's going to happen, we're going to see new players come along, uh, new funds that just focus on uh, cryptocurrency, and they will play the roles of VCs. Uh, we're seeing that already. Uh, we're going to see some VCs uh, create new funds that just focus on that particular segment. So it's a new asset class, basically, crypto currency, crypto assets, it's a new asset class. And we're going to see new, uh, even accelerators. We have one called uh, Co-Founded. Uh, I'm an advisor to them as a uh, disclaimer, uh, who, who is uh, kind of think of them as a as a tech stars or the, as a Y Combinator. Uh, and the, their model is, is, is a token model. So um, they help um, emerging startups um, start and grow but go the ico route um, so we're seeing those uh, emerge um, so we're going to see basically new players we're going to see existing players take new roles and we're going to see some old players that will not change and that will continue to um, go the traditional route uh, and and these this will not die overnight and some of these funds have a 10-year horizon so if you just raised a recent fund two years ago, you still have another seven or eight years to spend that money and, and you will spend it gradually. So this will be an evolving space, uh, an evolving way uh, that, that the way it will change. Cool. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely agree. It's certainly going to be a long, long process, but uh, I, I do think it's it's going to be very interesting to see what, what happens to venture capital. And I mean, of course, we also have the, the chance now to have these kind of crowdsourced venture capital, right, which is happening to some extent where you have, uh, even with something like Shapeshift and Prism, right, where you can have on-chain asset management and then, you know, maybe you can follow different people managing assets. There's going to be so much innovation and change happening in this space. It's going to be... It's going to be very, very interesting to see that. So with regards to my positions earlier, like I, I, I agree that there's a lot of innovation coming and and I'm super excited about it. But after being in the space for so many years, you know, we, we've been just we we've been waiting for these killer apps. Right. And they're they're taking a long time to come. And, and, and I think that, um, yeah, I think I agree with you, Brian, that it's 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 a long road until we get to anything that's near what we might imagine as a you know successful company today um like facebook type users or uh, or google or something like that sure of course i mean these are gigantic companies but we have the first killer app it's here right which is crowdfunding i mean this is a killer app right it's it's bringing network ethereum network to absolute capacity breaking records, changing how startups are approaching it. So, you know, you may, we may like it though. We may not like it. We may think it's irrational. We may think, uh, it's leading to crazy things, but it is a killer app. That I would agree with. Yes. 
Well, William, thanks so much for coming on. We, we, we ran quite long, but I think it was super interesting talking to you and, and hearing a bit about your, you know, the important work you're doing and the perspective on these, uh, in this insane industry and all the latest developments. So thanks so much, William. Thank you. Bye-bye. And of course, uh, to our listeners, we're going to have uh, links to some of the blog posts William has written on his blog, startupmanagement.org. Uh, There's a lot of interesting articles on there, so we'll link to that also to uh, his book. So you can you can check that out. And uh, and yeah, and, and uh, the Token Summit uh, website too. I'm sure they're going to have uh, another, another interesting conference coming up. And I think the last one had a, a lot of interest around it. And yeah. Uh, I'm sure this can turn into a, a good conference series. We also have a YouTube channel where all of the sessions from the Token Summit are being have been published now. Excellent. Yeah, so we're going to link to that as well so people can check out the YouTube site. So thanks so much to our listeners uh, for tuning in once again. We're going to be back next week with another episode. And if you want to support the show, you can do so by leaving us an iTunes review that helps new people find the show and makes us very happy. So thanks so much. And we look forward to being back next week.